I would much rather you make the wrong decision, but be a hundred percent committed to that decision than have the right decision and be indecisive about it. Because invariably the shot that you are committed to, you're going to hit way better than the shot that you don't hit. That's right, but you're not committed to. Welcome to another episode of the Peak Performance Selling Podcast, where we interview top sellers and sales leaders to learn the different tips, tricks, and mental strategies that they use to create sustainable peak performance. Let's get rolling. Welcome to today's episode of the Peak Performance Selling Podcast. Today, I'm incredibly excited to welcome Dr. Paul Ashbrook, who is a mental skills coach and adjunct professor of sport and performance psychology at Holy Names and National Universities. Throughout the past 10 years, Dr. Ashbrook has consulted with a wide range of elite performers, utilizing mental skills training to enhance their performance. Dr. Ashbrook has spent a considerable amount of time consulting with elite golfers, both at the collegiate and professional levels, after spending his time as a pretty good golfer as well from what I hear. Uh, He's done a lot of research on individualized mental skills training in D1 college golf, was published in The Sports Psychologist, and is also presented on the mental skills that differentiate successful and non-successful D1 college golfers. With this knowledge and experience, Dr. Ashbrook is able to determine the needs of his clients and students and help them reach their full potential. I think for anybody that's a listener of the podcast can understand why I would love to share his thoughts, his knowledge, as there's such a strong correlation between elite sports performers and being professionals, as well as what we're seeing in the sales realm. And so I actually got introduced to Dr. Ashbrook through Tiki Biswal as he works as a skills coach for him, and they worked really closely together and has had profound impact on how he performs. So Dr. Ashbrook, welcome, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm incredibly excited to, uh, to pass along some insights and help out uh, you know, all the listeners. Yeah, I think when we had a chance to connect, there was just so much insight that you were able to leverage as you've spent a, a really long career in academia as well as working with different individuals. And with everybody, we always start with how did you get into this realm of mental skills coaching, being a professor? Talk to me a little bit about your journey and what got you here. It's such a funny story because for the longest time, I wanted to be a professional athlete. That was my dream. You know, growing up, I played pretty much every sport you could think of. I fell in love with golf. I played golf at a pretty high level throughout high school. And then I went to uh, to college and I was going to play collegiately. Had a couple of things that kind of prevented that from happening. You know, some injuries and just didn't play well enough and was kind of unsure of what was going to happen. And so... I was lucky enough, I had a a friend of mine at UC Riverside. That's where I went to undergrad. And she encouraged me to pursue graduate school. And I never had thought about graduate school. Graduate school was never anything on my radar. So I started looking into some things. And and I had a background in psychology. It was something that I was always good at, something that I was interested in. And I always had a passion for sports. I was like, oh, what if I like pair these two sort of interests of mine, sport and, and psychology? And Luckily enough, I found a great school at San Diego State. They were nice enough to let me in, maybe without deserving so, but they let me in and I made them proud to say the least. And, you know, I graduated from my master's program and I was really kind of thinking I was going to go the route of applied practitioner, right? I'm going to travel around the world. I'm going to consult with, you know, Olympians, professional athletes and all of these things. And it didn't work out that way. It's really hard to build a private practice. And so I started you know, reaching out to colleagues of mine and saying, Hey, you know, can I have some opportunities to teach? And, you know, they gave me some opportunities and I fell in love with it. And for me, teaching was a way of helping others, which is ultimately the reason why I got into sport and performance psychology is to help people. It was just helping people in a different way. And so went back to school, got my doctorate in sport and performance psychology. And for me, a perfect balance is a little bit of academia, because for me, I think the, the research, the academic side is truly important and it really defines a lot of the work that I do. You know, I'm, a, I'm an evidence-based practitioner. The work that I do is not sort of anecdotal. It is based in science, based in research. And so from there, I can then connect it over to the applied side where I work with elite athletes, military populations, obviously the business side, surgeons, things like that. And so, yeah, for me, it was a little bit of happenstance. I got lucky in, in a couple of opportunities. But when I had those opportunities, I certainly ran with them and really found a calling. That's such a cool story. Uh, again, because so many people that I have on the podcast are, are, you know, all folks like really 
have been in the sales realm, have stumbled through that. And so to get a little bit of a different perspective on how do you take the research, the science, that insight, and then apply it into, you know, one, what you're teaching, you know, students as they grow, as there has been such accelerated development in this whole realm, from my perspective, at least in the last five to 10 years, I'd be curious what you think there. But it's really something that we are just seeing apply in so many more areas. As you talk about doctors, beyond even just the elite athletes, it's these folks that have to perform in high-pressure, high-stress situations. Talk to me a little bit about how you've seen this field evolve in your time in it, and what are maybe some of the things that you're most excited about as you look at some new research coming out? It's funny because it's weird to say, you know, I, I go to the conferences yearly, and I always felt like this really, like, nobody. And truth be told, I am kind of a nobody in the grand scheme of things. But I've been going to these things for, you know, 10 years, right? I've been in the field for over a decade at this point. And, you know, hitting that sort of decade mark, I was like, man, I've been doing this for a long time. And I've seen a lot of things and I'm actually kind of, you know, relatively known and and students like respect me and all that. So it's, it's kind of a cool thing, but I still feel very humble in that sense. So the funniest thing is when I was going through graduate school, one of my professors, he told me, you hear the same thing all the time, all the conferences, it's bickering about title usage. It's bickering about certain concepts and constructs and what's right, what's wrong. And as I go through the field, I see those same things, right? Like I'm on an email listserv in sport and performance psychology, and it's always just bickering back and forth about, oh, well, we should be able to call ourselves a psychologist. No, you can't, blah, blah. And that gets old. I think the thing that is exciting, though, is performance psychology is becoming far more normalized, right? So for the longest period of time, there was this huge stigma with any type of psychology, right? Somebody would say, oh, I have to go see the psychologist. Oh, you got to go see a shrink. Like what's wrong with you, right? It was viewed as a weakness. And I think that while there is still undertones of that in a lot of high performance environments, whether it's the military, whether it's, you know, medicine, especially athletics, people realize that It's not about fixing something that's broken. It's more about enhancing something that is already inherent within you, right? So something that I always try and convey to prospective clients or even clients of mine is, well, you may come and see me when things feel off. Like that's normal. That's why a lot of people reach out to me. That doesn't preclude you from using me when things are going well, right? I can help you get better even when you're doing really, really well, even if it's, yeah, you know what? I'm below my baseline. I need to get back to baseline. So I think that that's becoming a little bit more normalized. It's becoming a little bit more accepted. And and that's exciting. That's intriguing because more people are comfortable reaching out. People understand that we are part of a team, right? It's not this sort of, oh, don't tell anybody about him. It's like, I want to shout this guy out. He's doing a great job. He's helping me. And it's not a bad thing. It's so true because this whole concept of coaching has really really accelerated from what I've seen in the professional world pretty recently. And to me, it moves much more in alignment with how do we be our best? How do we unlock the best that we have within us? As I work with a few clients, it's not, it's really fascinating to see how much they will sit there and shed praise on me when I haven't really done much aside from maybe a couple of questions or even just creating this container in this space for someone to to envision what does a great year look like for them and to actually take some intentional construction behind it, I, I think is really powerful. You talk about how people can start to approach this, you know, concept of it's not, you know, fixing something that's broken, but really, you know, tap into to what they already inherently have. What have you found from your experience makes a really good coaching client or somebody that is very coachable, as we talk a lot about in the sales and sales management realm? Honestly, the the biggest thing that I look for is just engagement, right? So if I show up to a session and I'm prepared and you have thought about what you want to talk about or you thought about what we're going to talk about and you are actively participating in that, we're golden, right? If you are open-minded and I give you an idea and you're like, hmm, I haven't thought about that. Or yeah, you know what? I'll try and integrate that. Great. If you just show up and do the work, right? Like I can't tell you the number of times 
And this is more on the academic side, less so on the professional side. The professional side, I could count on probably one hand clients of mine who just, they weren't there and we didn't work. We didn't, we didn't keep working because I didn't want to be there. They didn't want to be there. And we, we went our separate ways. But on more of the academic side, there are people who, you know, they slack, right? They don't pay attention. They make excuses. And then when they get called on it, they're like, oh, like, give me a break. Like, why are you holding me to such a high standard? It's like, I'm not holding you to such a high standard. I'm just expecting you to be as invested in this as I am, right? Because this is a, a collaborative effort, right? It, it's interesting. I'm a doctor, right? So I have a doctorate in psychology. And so a lot of people refer to me as doctor. And that's fine. Like, I'm comfortable being called Dr. Ashbrook or Dr. Paul. But a lot of people will ask me, hey, like, what do you want me to call you? Most people, especially like when I'm working with like professional clients, I'll say, just call me Paul, right? Because I don't want to establish some sort of like hierarchy where it's like, I'm above them. No, we are collaborating, right? We are working together with a similar goal in mind. And yeah, if you feel comfortable calling me Dr. Ashbrook from like a respect perspective, like I'm wholly on board with that, but I don't expect that. I don't need that, right? There's not this sort of like, arrogance about it that I have to be above you. It's like, no, like we're working together here and we're a team. I think that's really important from like a coaching perspective. Yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day and they were talking about how sales management is one of the least prepared roles in any organization. And I think one of those biggest transitions when I talk to different managers, when I've had the chance to work under different managers is that move towards coaching is that move towards how do you actually develop people really effectively? And I've found that it's quite easy for folks to get that manager, director, VP title, and the ego creeps in. And I'm just curious from your perspective, I feel like there's probably some research or science behind, you know, approaching this as a team, approaching this as an equal versus a superior that really helps. And I'm just curious, you know, what advice or how might you help newer managers think about coaching really effectively and not saying, well, you have to do this because I said so, but more so because we're in this together. Well, it's interesting. So I'm not going to necessarily give you any research, but I'm a big fan of John Wooden. And John Wooden is one of my like coaching sort of idols. His philosophies really influence a lot of my sort of thinking. One thing that's always stuck out to me, especially when he talks about just individual performers, is it's never about being better than somebody else, right? It's being as good as somebody else. And so a lot of times when I'm working with with high-level performers, there's this natural social comparison that's going on, right? Where they want to be compared to somebody else, somebody who's really, really good. And that's fine. That's normal. But I'd say it's not about being better than them, right? Go in. And know that if you do your job, you can be as good or better than them, right? Focus more on you and what you have to do as opposed to what everybody else has to do. Now, how that pertains to the sales manager, the director, whatever it might be, even if you're really, really good, right? You're killing it. You're closing President's Club, right? You're dominating all of your metrics. That's great. But know that there's still room for improvement, right? You can still focus on your growth and what you can continually do better every single day and know that, hey, yeah, it's not about what everybody else is doing, right? They may be killing it and I might be doing poorly or I might be killing it and they are doing poorly. It's about how I bring it to the table every single day. And when we were talking before, you talked to me a little bit about maybe an equation on how can you win every day? Can you talk to me a little bit about how you think about that? Yeah, so... I'm a huge fan of self-confidence, right? I, I, it's one of my sort of fundamental skills that I teach to all of my clients. And basically, the, the scientific piece is it's self-efficacy. And self-efficacy in, in layman's terms is situational specific self-confidence. And so there are four factors that influence that. They are past performance success, something termed vicarious experience, which is basically like modeling or, or trying to use others as sort of an example, self-talk, so your own self-talk and those from others, and then optimal arousal. Now, by and large, past performance success blows all of those others out of the water. 
Yet a lot of performers will focus on like feeling good and, and self-talk and all of that. And so what I'll do is I'll ask them, well, what's the issue with past performance success? And they're like, well, what if I don't have any past performance success to draw on? And I say, well, why is that? And they're like, well, I don't have the results. And I say, well, that's the issue, right? Because you're looking at this from a very binary perspective. Win, loss, sale, no sale, got the job, didn't get the job. And I say, you're going to take a lot more L's than you're going to take W's if that happens. And what we know is that the more confident you are, the better you perform. The better you perform, the more confident you are. So there's this like upward mobility. The opposite also happens. So if you aren't confident, your performance decreases. As your performance goes down, your confidence goes down, and it's this sort of race to the bottom. So I challenge them and I say, focus on daily wins, right? Win the day. And the three things that I pretty much push daily is optimal attitude. So for you, what is the attitude that you need to have in order to perform your best every day? Is that a confident attitude? Is it an optimistic attitude? Is it an exploratory attitude, right? There's a lot of different attitudes that people have that allow them to perform really effectively. The next one is maximum effort, right? A lot of times when things are not going well, and this is sales, this is athletics, this is pretty much anything, people phone it in. And I've done it myself. I'm not proud to admit that, but there are plenty of times where, you know, when I was a performer, I wasn't doing well. You don't give your full effort. That's a problem, right? So no matter what the situation is, you give maximum effort at all times. And then the last one is daily improvement, right? If you can improve every single day, performance compounds, right? So you might not be where you want to be today, but who's to say that you're not there a week from now, a month from now, two months from now. So really trying to emphasize those. And I tell people, okay, if you win every single day, how confident do you think you'll be after that? And they're like, oh yeah, I'd probably be really, really confident. I'm like, well, there we go, right? (laughs) It's such a powerful equation and super simple to do because it's so easy to get lost in the things that are outside of our control. I've been nerding out a lot lately on stoicism that really focuses on like what is in your control? How do you focus on those things and not get lost in this really easy to do downward spiral of all the things that you can't focus on and you can't control? So coming back to how do I decide that I want to show up today? And I love the question of what is the attitude that I need to bring to the table? How can I actually give my maximum effort with the right attitude is a fantastic building block. And then find those wins. You know, it's like, what have I done today to help move forward? Leans into that growth mindset that I talk about a lot with folks and helps reinforce that. Because from what I hear from you, and I'm pretty sure the research backs this up, these things can be built. This can be developed over time. And when you look at, you know, what drives successful and non-successful performers, sport, business, whatever it is, do you see similarities between each category or things that really hinder performance for some folks that maybe, you know, they've been built to believe over time that like, yeah, I can't improve. They have that fixed mindset. Or, or do you see things that come up for you there? Yeah. And I don't know that it's even just athletics versus business versus, you know, education. I'd say like, High performers have a lot of similarities versus, we won't say low performers, but like less high performers. I think the ones who tend to struggle, you will see a lot of perfectionistic thinking, right? There has to be this ideal that they fulfill. And if they don't fulfill that ideal, it's not going to be good enough. This idea that every event is different and unique. And so based on the sort of importance of the event, I'm going to devote more time and attention to it as opposed to, well, no, I'm going to devote maximum time, maximum effort, maximum energy to everything that I do, right? The confidence one is huge, right? The things we say to ourselves, the sort of self-belief that we have. I'm going to tell you a quick story and it it kind of tangents back to sort of my, my graduate school story. So I had no business getting into grad school, like none. My undergraduate GPA was like a 2.65. The minimum GPA to get into San Diego State that I got into was like a 2.75. And the funniest thing was 
they told me this, right? Like I emailed the admissions team and they're like, yeah, you know, you've got some issues here. And I said, all right, well, like, let me just give it a chance, right? I believe in myself. I believe I can be successful. Let me give it a shot. So I wrote him an email. And sure enough, that entire week that in here, every single day, my mom was like, yeah, you know what? Like you can try again next year. Like it'll be okay. Go take some more classes every single day. And the funniest thing is you ask her today, you're like, hey, mom, like, should I have gotten into grad school? She's like, hell no, you had no business getting into grad school. But you know what? Sometimes you're going to be the only person that believes in yourself. And you're going to be the one who has to push yourself when things get difficult, right? You're not going to have your boss. You're not going to have your spouse. You're not going to have your friends who are going to say, you can do this. You have to be your best friend. And so understanding that I think is really, really important. That is such a powerful story because I know I struggle with that many times. I know when I talk to new folks on the team, new sellers, they fall into that trap of, well, I haven't sold this yet, of that past performance success that is so common for most of us where you've got to push yourself. You've got to be your own advocate because nobody else will be if you won't stand up for yourself. I am curious what you think about the thought around fake it until you make it. There's some relevance to it or some belief in it, right? Because if you don't believe in your ability to do it, there's no chance, right? There's this concept known as a self-fulfilling prophecy that basically the things that we say, the things that we believe invariably come true. So if I go into a, a meeting, whether I'm prepared for it or not, and I say, I'm going to bomb this meeting, the likelihood is I'm going to fail. And there are a couple of reasons why. Humans, good and bad, would rather be right than do something that is beneficial to them, right? So if I go in and I say, I'm going to screw this up, I'm going to somehow find a way to screw it up to confirm my belief rather than find a way to succeed, even though it's more beneficial for me to succeed. So the flip side of that is kind of the fake it till you make it, where it's like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to believe in myself and I'm going to expect good things to happen. Now, it gets a little bit sort of hokey at times where you get into some of the sort of like self-help type stuff and you get into some of that like secret and, and power type stuff and like just believing it doesn't manifest it. That's not how stuff works, right? What usually happens is if you have something in your mind then you lay out a plan of attack, how I'm going to find a way to be successful. And that's what allows you to be successful rather than some like osmosis occurring. That's so great as one of the things that that did blow my mind open, I want to say in maybe my sophomore or junior year of high school was I, I did see the secret and loved it, I, you know, shared it with a lot of folks. But it came down to me as this concept of whether or not, I, I don't know, I'm not smart enough, research-based enough, you know, I don't even know if our technology can get there today to tell you whether that actually attracts things into the world. But if you spend time understanding what you want to accomplish, what you want in your life, you spend time thinking about it, you are more likely to, to your point, put the plan in place and then execute on that plan to get there. And so I've had a lot of folks be like, oh, it's, you know, this is all bullshit. This doesn't matter. And I'm like, it may be. But if you look at the core foundation of saying like, yeah, I want to define what I want in my life, our brain is naturally probably going to move more towards this self-fulfilling prophecy of saying, now, how do I take the actions that actually get me to the thing that I want? And I think that's where it's become a pretty big misconception of like, oh, I just think about having a million dollars in my bank account and here it is. As no, <laughs> no. Now, if you say, hey, I want to make a million dollars. <laughs> Don't have a vision board in your house? I actually don't. But I've got a lot of pictures that surround me of things that I like to do. Because I think these things, again, it's like, all right, great. You make the vision board. You've now taken some action to say, okay, this is my reminder of what I want to do to get fired up every day. But it, it is an interesting one. And I think, to your point earlier of why you got into psychology, it's around, well, how do we help people? Because I think as individuals, we get the most value out of contributing and giving to others. And if we're just sitting here focused on here's how much money I want to make and what I want with my money, it starts to sell it short. You know, as a golfer, I'm going to use this for, for some personal help, and I'm sure there's other struggling golfers out there. But my handicap's something atrocious of like a 19. And 
yeah, I write down a goal of like, okay, I, I want to get down to, you know, 14, 13. Where is the gap that you find as you've worked with a lot of collegiate golfers that are far superior in terms of handicap with me, you know, probably trying to get into the plus ones, twos, whatnot. What do you find is the gap, though, with those folks around knowing that they want to get better and actually getting to that next level of performance? A lot of times it's it's less is more. And it's funny to tie all this together. I think it's hilarious because you're like, oh, I'm going to set a goal, right? I'm a 19 and I want to get down to a 13. And I think one of the issues is that a lot of people feel like if I just set a goal, I'm going to, it's all going to take care of itself. That's not how it works, right? And so for me, I would much rather see sort of a conscious effort on, all right, what are my areas that I am strong at? And are there ways that I can enhance those? What are areas that I'm weak at? And how can I maybe clean those things up? One area that I will spend a lot of time on with with clients is decisiveness and commitment, right? Because in golf, especially where a lot of players struggle is they will collect the relevant information. They know the shot that needs to be hit, but then they struggle to make a decision. And, And so I'll bring them back to some of the really early like test literature. So when people take tests, there's usually a 70 to 80% likelihood of success when you trust your gut so long as you have prepared for that exam. So if you know the material, trusting your gut is far superior to going back and rereading a question eight times, right? Did you ever play the telephone game when you were a kid, right? That message gets lost so quickly. That's what happens in a test, right? You've reread the question five times. And by the time you've reread it the second or third time, that question is all jargled. And so you're not even sure what you're answering at that point. So really trying to get them to trust their gut, be decisive, right? Quick, informed, thoughtful decisions, and just own it, right? So for me, I would much rather you make the wrong decision, but be 100% committed to that decision than have the right decision and be indecisive about it. Because invariably, the shot that you are committed to, you're going to hit way better than the shot that you don't hit. That's right, but you're not committed to. Are you ready to commit and take your performance and fulfillment to the next level? Check out my core OS, where we work with sales leaders and teams to take their performance to the next level by creating championship operating systems and cultures with live Zoom workshops, one-on-one trainings, mindfulness for sales, and more. Check us out at mycoreos.com. It's interesting because you start talking about, you know, okay, do they have the data? Are they tracking? And I think that's, again, where we see so much correlation between sales performance as a prof- sales professional and sports professional performance, because they take the time to do the work. They have the data, they have the insight. And then we talk about confidence. And I think you've touched on this a few different ways on how folks can build it, which I think is really powerful because especially people that may be early on in their career or wherever they are, confidence is tough to maintain when you get into a tough time, when, you know, you struggle a little bit. And so let's say you've got a, you know, an athlete or somebody you've been coaching or working with for a while and they're in a rut. What do you go back to to help those folks bounce back or to, you know, shake themselves out of that tough place? So one of them is you have them remember the successes that they've had. Right. So in golf, I have this thing that I term like the positive shot library. So when you hit good shots, I want you to put this in your sort of memory bank. So when things are going poorly, you can pull it out when needed. Or when you need to hit a really important shot, you can pull it out of this sort of positive shot library. The other thing, though, that I do is I have small wins. Right. So I had a client of mine who for the longest time, he basically had the driver yips and he could not keep the ball in play. And for me, it was like, all right, I don't care if you're uncomfortable, but let's try and find a way to get the ball in play. Because if we can get the ball in play, then we can start focusing on narrowing down that target, right? So you start very broad and say, all right, let's find a way to get up and hit it solidly, even if it's in the rough or in the trees or whatever. From there, then let's narrow that target, narrow that target, narrow that target. And it's, again, small little wins because, hey, wow, okay, I'm able to get the ball in play now. I, I gain a little bit more confidence. Okay, now let's hone it in a little bit. Let's focus on eliminating you know, 
a big miss or, or whatever it might be. All right, cool. I can do that. So it's more and more and more success. The challenge is, is that the human mind is naturally drawn to like the failures and the things that you're still doing poorly. And so it's like this constant sort of like push and pull where you're like, no, man, like you are on the right track, right? Just keep steadily improving and trust that that's going to be enough. But again, inside you're like, it's not enough. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. And that causes its own set of issues. And I've been spending a lot of time after my grandma planted these seeds with me many, many years ago around this attitude of gratitude. And you being somebody that that has so much knowledge around psychology, performance, I have seen a lot that talks about how our brain is really programmed to understand failures, to pay attention to failures, to keep us alive in the most innate sense. And so do you see something like a gratitude practice as something that's helpful or effective for training the brain? I feel like that aligns a little bit with some of your principles around how you win the day, how you show up. But talk to me a little bit about that and maybe some of the science around how the brain has been programmed to work for you know thousands and thousands of years and what we're needing to adapt to in the way that we work in today's day and age. Certainly. So, I mean, this is pure evolution, right? So, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us if we're walking through, you know, the the Icelands to be like, oh yeah, everything's golden, everything's great. I don't need to improve. And then a saber-toothed cat runs around the corner and you're like, oh, well, it was nice knowing you. Like, so there there has to be some level of like fear or apprehension or distrust or like I'm always on edge. We don't have saber-toothed cats constantly running around now. So it's not as relevant. But in terms of sort of the question about gratitude, it's something I always encourage, right? I encourage my clients pretty much daily to jot down a couple of good things that happen to them just overall in their practice sessions, because what they can do is at the end of the week or at the end of the month, they can then go back to those things and reflect and say, wow, okay, I did actually accomplish a lot. Because what tends to happen is if I had you in a room and I said, all right, if I asked you to list three good things that happened to you today, how difficult would it be? Now, some people will be like, oh, that was pretty easy or that's generally pretty easy. But more often than not, most people struggle with that. They're like, how many? I'm like, three. They're like, can I just give you one? I'm like, no, I want three or five or whatever it might be. And it shows how challenging it is. But then if I reverse the question, I say, all right, if I was to ask you to list three bad things that happened to you today, and they're like, oh, that'd be so easy we choose to focus more on the bad than we choose to focus on the good. And that's in performance. That's in our day-to-day life. It's in our relationships. And so really emphasizing the idea of, no, what went well today, right? I'm a big, big, big proponent of sort of strengths-based consulting. You know, what am I doing well? Positive psychology, what's going right? And so emphasizing, hey, I did this well in my practice session. I learned this in my practice session, not only makes us feel confident because it feels like we are progressing, but it actually gives us a roadmap that we're seeing the daily improvement. We're seeing the daily progress. So it kind of feeds back into that whole, you know, three main things that I encourage to enhance your past performance success. That's so great. I think there is so much opportunity in those simple questions of just like, okay, if I asked you to list three things that were really good that happened to you today, how hard would that be? I find would be really challenging for most people. And especially for the majority of folks that I interact with here in the United States, we are already, you know, the top 1% of people in the world. And for us to to struggle to find the good things that are happening, I, I bet there are a lot of people around the world that would be astounded to hear that. And yet you see other cultures that can appreciate so much more when they have so much less shows you that there's something to it in the mind. And when you start thinking about, you know, what you want to evaluate or develop when you start working with something, somebody new, what are those things that you try to identify with them to really tailor your approach, knowing that every human has a little bit different perspective, has a little bit different story or, you know, maybe mission as to what they're trying to accomplish? Like, how do you tailor your work and how do you help folks you know, be their own best self? Great question. A lot of what I do comes back to 
sort of assessment and observation. So whether it's sort of verbal or visual observation, I'm watching them perform, I'm watching the things that they're doing, I'm looking at the scores they're you know, presenting, that's valuable information. Sometimes I'll talk to coaches, parents, you know, colleagues, that gives me insight. I ask the, the performer themselves, you know, what's going on? What are you wanting to accomplish? And so it's all of this information kind of thrown together. The more I have, the better I can make those decisions, right? There are some people who it takes time for them to be comfortable opening up and that's fine. I get that. And so, you know, I try and build a, a relationship with them, build rapport, right? Let them know some of the challenges I've had, some of the struggles I've had. It's not just I'm the expert, tell me everything that you have and let me go to work. It's like, well, no, you're a human. I'm a human. And I think that for me, I do a lot of remote consulting, not only because of COVID, but just the nature of the work that I do. I I work with clients literally all over the world. And so for a lot of those clients, I have built in travel sessions where I will actually go visit them in person to reestablish that human connection. I don't have to do that, right? I can do my work quite competently just through a computer. But part of the reason why I'm really good at what I do is because I keep that human piece, right? I understand you're a human. You're a human. We're all humans. And let's keep that connection. Let's keep that bond, right? It feels like we are so far apart. I think I told you this story when we talked a, a couple of weeks ago. So many years ago, I was on a cruise and then we stopped in Barbados. Me and my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we stopped at a beach in Barbados and there was a, a local, you know, I think he was a transient. I don't think he was, you know, doing too well for himself. And he was like, hey, buy me a beer, buy me a beer, buy me a beer. I was like, all right, whatever, I'll buy you a beer, but here's what I want to do. I want to talk to you. And so we started talking and he asked me where I was from. And I said, oh, I'm from California. And he's like, oh, that's where Tupac is from. And I just smiled. I was like, exactly. We were 4,000 miles apart, right? We, we had completely different upbringings. We had completely different backgrounds. But at that moment in time, over a beer on a beach in Barbados, we were able to connect over Tupac, right? And people may chuckle, they may laugh. But if we could do more of that, where we find the commonalities, where we find the things that bond us, I think everybody would be in a better place. It really is an incredibly powerful thing. If you can find that one thing in common with somebody, all of a sudden it enables rapport so much more effectively. I live up in the ski mountains, so I go to the example all the time of like you hop on a ski lift. And again, COVID makes things a little bit weirder now, but it makes it so easy to open up that conversation with somebody knowing that you have at least one thing in common. You're outside, you're skiing at the same place and you find this like, oh, Tupac. And you're like, yeah, totally. Which again, like probably never would have crossed your mind, but the guy brings it up and you're like, totally. Like, let's vibe on that. Let's connect. And it makes it so easy. I've always wanted to create an app that, you know, helps you find like something in common with people around you. Kind of like an online dating app, but not for dating. Well, it's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? I mean, it literally shows that, but in human perspective, right? Like we are so connected, whether we realize it or not. It's just fascinating. It's pretty impressive. And I think it's so easy, easily forgotten in these times right now of how closely aligned we are. I've been reading a book about race and it, it talks a lot about how we never really took into account like the, the fact that we're 99.99% the same, white, black, Asian, doesn't matter. And yet we create so much differentiation from that. And so much has been conditioned in us to see that as difference versus we're all almost exactly the same. I have a four-year-old daughter. And one thing me and my wife have really tried to instill in her and, and establish in her is a love of other cultures, right? Because like me and my wife, we love to travel. That was something that we did a lot when we were dating and all of that. And so my daughter, I think she already has like four passport stamps, which is pretty dope for a four-year-old. Like she's killing it. But the funniest thing is, is, you know, we were in Mexico, I guess, early last year. It's like these years kind of blend together at this point. And just, you know, teaching my daughter like basic Spanish, right? And so you go to a restaurant 
and you know she'll say hola or she'll say gracias and you see the the happiness in everybody else's eyes not that like she's saying it perfectly but she's making an effort and she there's a level of respect there's a level of care that you are valuable. You are important. You are a human. And I want to show you respect, right? Like I can butcher your language and trying to learn Spanish. Talk about like a challenge. I have so much more respect for people who come here and try and learn English. My goodness, it is so nerve wracking, but like you just try and people are like, Hey man, good job. Like (laughs) I appreciate the effort. (laughs) It has blown my mind as I'm decent Spanish speaker, been working on it for years, but to see so many folks that then come to the States that are like, oh, my English is no good. And I'm like, your English is light years ahead of my Spanish. And I've been working at it for a while and I think I'm decent. And it's like, it, it is just so amazing. One, the power of learning a different language and what that can do for the brain, let alone what that does for building empathy for other people, what that does for understanding and appreciating these other cultures can go so, so far. I think that's an awesome point. And glad to hear your daughter's getting out traveling the world. That is so cool. Oh, yeah, man. She's doing well. We're pretty excited about that. So That's super exciting. And working on the Spanish. We talked the other day about mission statements and where I think a lot of folks struggle to have this level of empowerment behind what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. And they just say, oh, here's what my company wants to do. So there, there I am. Can you talk to us a little bit about an effective mission statement and what that may look like for folks? Yeah, totally. So mission statements are tricky, right? Because usually mission statements are created by the top of an organization, right? The CEO, the president, the person who started the company. And that's fine, right? The issue though is that that mission statement calls to them, right? Because they're the ones who created it. So as you distill that down, the lower levels of that organization don't have the same connection to that mission statement. They may, right? I'm not saying that they can't, but more often than not, that mission statement feels very forced. You'll see it in athletics too, right? It's not just in the business world. You'll see it in in team settings too. And so what I will often do is I will help people establish personalized mission statements. Because at the end of the day, whether it's the team, and this could be a business team, this could be an athletic team, this could be a military team, right? You have an idea of what you guys want from that experience, right? And so I will often ask them, all right, what are you wanting from this experience? Like, I don't care about what the organization's mission is. What do you guys want? And so they'll start working through some things. And again, it kind of comes back to some of these fundamental things. What are the attitudes that we can all buy into? What are the effort expectations that we have? There's usually going to be a social component right? Because in a team, in an organization, there's usually a social aspect to it. And then recognition, right? So attitude, what is an attitude that we expect either of ourselves or of our teammates that we can all buy into, that we can all support? Well, what's the effort expectation? And what does that look like, right? So I really have them distill it down into actionable behaviors. This is what the behaviors need to look like. Recognition, Do you want recognition from yourself? Do you want recognition from your peers? What do you want to be recognized for? That goes beyond just the organization, right? If you go in and you say, yeah, you know what? My organization's mission, it doesn't really call to me. And so I'm not going to work as hard. That's not good for you. That's not good for the organization. But if you come in and you say, well, this is what I want from a recognition piece. This is what I want from an attitude piece. This is what I want from a, a social interaction piece. Well, now I'm a little bit more engaged. And so I'm going to perform at a little bit higher level. And I'm probably going to have more enjoyment, more excitement. And it's going to be beneficial to everybody. So yeah, really trying to think mission personally. What do I want or what do we want? Getting everybody on board. And here's the sort of cool thing about it. If you do it in an organizational setting, right? Let's say you do it in your team. That's great. I think that's a a really nice way for teams to come together to, again, build this mutual accountability that should intentionally drive us all to better performance, again, to the actions, to the tasks that need to happen. I really think that's a powerful one, especially as you think about, you know, managing, building a team, uh, all those different areas. One of the challenges, though, one of the very tricky things, though, individual employees are going to think that you are trying to trick them because they assume that 
you want them to answer a particular way. So as the sort of head, the person who's running it, you really have to take a hands-off approach and just kind of let it go. Um, Because I've seen too many times where individuals will look to the boss, they'll look to the coach, they'll look and say, well, this is what our mission statement is. This is what we're supposed to say, right? And they're like, yes, no. And, And it creates confusion. So it's like, really have to be hands off and let them create what they truly want and then be okay with that. So powerful. One or two more questions as we wrap up here, because there is a ton of wisdom for a lot of folks. Talk to me just a a little bit about what do most people get wrong about the mental performance and mental skills needed to perform at their best? I think a lot of people think that they need to feel comfortable in order to perform at a high level, right? Again, I, I bring a lot of stuff back to confidence because I think it's it's a really fundamental thing. And one of the things that performers will often want is to feel physiologically prepared, right? They want to feel relaxed. They want to feel calm. They want to feel cool. They want to feel collected. And that's great. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, if you can have that, that's wonderful. The issue, though, is that the high-performance environment naturally creates discomfort. It naturally creates challenge. It naturally creates stress. So if you are constantly in a state of, I'm trying to get comfortable, it's going to be really hard for you to get comfortable because the environment is naturally changing. It's naturally creating discomfort. What I think is far more beneficial is having the mentality of, while I may want to be comfortable, I'm okay not being comfortable. My focus is on how do I manage this as effectively as possible, right? How can I perform in this as much as I possibly can? I think the other one that really jumps out to me, it pertains to focus, it pertains to just generalized attitude, is the only thing that matters is now, right? I watched The Last Dance. I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan. um, And there was this clip that really kind of stuck with me. and, And Michael once said, you know, why would I ever think about missing a shot that I haven't even taken yet? So not only is he incredibly positive, right? He's focused on success, not failure, but he's like, I'm not even wasting my energy on something that hasn't happened yet. So often people will be thinking 10 steps ahead about what might happen if I do this, 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 and this, but the likelihood is that event's probably never even going to happen. So you're wasting all of this energy on the front end to deal with something that's never going to happen. Right. So I'm much more focused on, you know, a level of acceptance, right? Like good things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. That's it is what it is. But for you, it's how do you respond to it? Right. If you using golf as an example, if you hit it in the trees or you hit it in the water, how do you rebound? Right. How do you figure out how to solve that new problem instead of I feel uncomfortable now? I feel bad. I feel sad. It's like, yeah, you're probably going to feel that way. How do you deal with it? How do you manage? Oh, man, you are just hitting me right in the chest where where I feel that is. I've fallen victim to that so many times. This concept of like good things are going to happen, bad things are going to happen. But how do you handle it? How do you bounce back? And how do you now solve the new challenge in front of you versus wallow in the old things that have been there? I come always to Coach K's next play philosophy that I find so powerful. And oh, there's so many things from John Wooden that I, I want to unpack from you. I might need to have you on again. But two last questions to wrap up that I, I love to ask everybody. Do you love winning or hate losing more? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. To be quite honest, I really hate to lose. Like it bothers me to my core when I lose. Like I'm a very competitive person, right? I'll play board games and, and I don't want to lose. I really like winning though. I, I don't know that I can answer that question. <laughs> I love hearing people think through that because especially in the sports, sales, competitive environments, because that I answer that question very similarly to you. I love the thrill of winning and I hate losing. I've tried to, again, make losing more of a learning opportunity, but it still stings. And that's still the thing that keeps you up at night. So I, I, I love your answer. I, I completely resonate with that one. I will say this. The more I think about it, I would say I always try and find a win in something. So I guess for me, it is more of the winning piece. So 
very quick story. I play in a men's club, like I play in a men's golf club locally. And so, you know, a perfect example of this. Last week, played terribly. I wasn't very pleased with the way I scored. Hadn't birdied any holes. Get to 18, knock it to three feet. Birdie 18 to shoot 79, which wasn't a particularly good score on the day, to be quite frank. But making birdie on 18, it makes the lunch taste better. It makes the day feel better. So it's like, that was a win, even if the day as a whole was kind of a loss. So it's like, I focus more on that birdie to close and finish strong. That's a perfect story. Because again, to your point earlier, how do you find those small wins? How do you hold on to those? And as most any golfer or athlete knows, it's it's those good shots that keep you coming back. <laughs> and so the last one that I'd love to ask you, Dr. Paul here is, what does success mean to you? All right, I'm just going to do the John Wooden thing because I think that it's like perfect. So success is the peace of mind was a, is a direct result of the self-satisfaction in knowing that you have done the best of which you are capable. Maybe not perfect, like, but basically knowing that you've done as much as you can and put forth your maximum effort to be the best of which you're capable, right? Oh, I'm so happy you went that direction because I was going to ask you to rattle off some John Wooden quotes uh, for us as another question. But I, I think you threw out one of my favorites there that really is this concept of when you live up to the standard that you set for yourself and you can do that day in and day out, success will come. Uh, again, to everything you've talked about, so much of this resides in our own mind and so much of it we have control over, even though maybe we have not totally been led to believe that until we end up in one of your classes, maybe, that I never had the opportunity for, that I had to go fall on my face time and time again to learn and continue to learn. And so I just want to thank you so much for sharing some of this knowledge with us, with the community, with the students as you start bringing this into the world, because I think this is the type of learning and type of development that really helps us push our world forward, help everybody be their best, have less anxiety and stress and depression around feeling like they aren't driving success for themselves and help them unlock greatness within themselves and even more greatness than they already have because they're not broken. So Dr. Paul Ashbrook, thank you so much I know we'll link to LinkedIn. Are there any other good places where folks can find you or where I should link to? Probably the best is just my direct email. So it's my first name, paul.ashbrook at gmail.com. I'm pretty responsive on there. So if you have any questions, if you want to get in touch with me, that's probably my best. I have some social media, but it's very minuscule. So it's like, I wouldn't even stress on that. <laughs> Perfect. We'll uh, link to that email if folks want to reach out, if they want to explore potentially coaching or learning more about you know how the brain works. And if anybody's, you know, in Southern California needs to get out for a golf round with a pretty legit golfer, we'll make sure they reach out. Hey, I've been known to travel, so I like traveling. I'm open to going elsewhere. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, uh, Dr. Paul Ashbrook, thank you so much. And uh, until next time, let's go crush it. Thank you. It's thanks to help from listeners like you. This podcast can continue to grow and help others. If you found anything helpful in today's episode, please take a second, share with a friend, and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast today. Thanks.